Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 141. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode today. pray that it's a blessing. So I was talking with a friend the other day, and our conversation was encircling this idea of the kingdom of God. And some people are well on board with this idea of the kingdom of God, and Jesus taught and preached on the kingdom. For other people, though, it might be kind of a a strange or foreign concept, this idea of the kingdom. But let's just presume, for the purposes of what I want to teach today, that you are part of the mentality that, okay, we, we are in the kingdom of God. Jesus taught on the kingdom. So what does that mean for me and what do I do with that reality? The fact that I am in the kingdom, what now what? What do we do? So out of that conversation I had with him that got me to thinking about this topic. And, you know, we don't really have, perhaps, I've not come across, we'll say it that way, many teachings on we're in the kingdom, now what? So this is what I'm actually calling this this teaching. Um, and by no means is it um, very full length. It just scratches the surface. So um, this is just kind of an introduction to the conversation and to give you some practical resources or first steps perhaps to take. So that being said, this is entitled The Kingdom of God. Now what? So when I say you, the Christian, are a part of the kingdom of God, think to yourself, do I understand what that means or entails? We read of kingdom much in the Gospels, Paul's letters to the churches and others, In fact, the term kingdom of God, or Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, occurs over 24 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 32 times in Luke, 2 times in John, 6 times in Acts, 8 times from Paul, and once in Revelation. By the way, this is something that... That statistic I found online, uh, I did not go through and count them. But with such a prevalent term appearing throughout the body of Scripture, it demands from us, the reader, investigation with the intent to understand. So first let me be clear, in this teaching, I do not imply that I have arrived at understanding. I continue to learn in this with everyone who hears it. What I do want to offer is a streamlined form of what Scripture shows through its text, and I ask that the Holy Spirit would teach us as He can so perfectly do. 
Because this teaching primarily deals with the idea of kingdom of God, now what? I want to presuppose or take for granted that you notice there is a kingdom and you, the Christian, are a part of it. Taking for granted that you acknowledge that, I want to attempt the best that I can for now to provide biblical text as evidence for what being a part of the kingdom of God requires from us. When I say require, don't hear slavery, but rather opportunity. We have the opportunity to participate in the reality of the kingdom of God. Truth puts you in a fork in the road. Truth is a point of decision. Do I go the way of truth or do I make my own way around truth? Which is what Solomon said. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is death. Do I accept and follow truth or do I reject and avoid truth? The truth of the reality of the kingdom of God should pose to us the decision of now what? What do I do with that truth and how can I live it out? We must keep throughout the interweaving of our learning the theme of the kingdom, which when defined by me is Jesus is King. Now, many experts, scholars, better people than myself have fantastic definitions of what the kingdom is, or better yet, how it is defined. But for the sake of simplicity and because it encompasses all individual components of better definitions, when asked to define the kingdom, I simply say, Jesus is king. Now that can be teased out for further exploration at another time, but those three words suffice and transcend individual paragraphs which attempt to encapsulate everything in the depth of kingdom. So keep Jesus is king in the forefront of your mind as we frolic through discovery. So what are our aims being in the kingdom? Now, without the risk of oversimplifying, my globally general answer is live as Jesus did. Now notice I use the word live and not do. Live as Jesus did, not do as Jesus did. I do not want this teaching to be translated as a doing checklist. Live encapsulates the entire life, not just what you do in your life. It's a subtle but major difference. We will see this subtlety present in the individual points. First, Luke three twenty one through 22 says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, 
heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Before Jesus did or accomplished any work of ministry, he was a son. The pleasure of God, the Father, was proclaimed before any work. The first reality that we are to be rooted in, inside the kingdom, is that because we are a son or daughter, God is pleased with us. Our preeminent reality inside the kingdom is that of a son or daughter. This truth and all it implies could be given one's whole life to study and process. Countless books have been written and read in this subject. Being children of a king entitles you to inheritance through that king. If the word entitled makes you squirm, you may have some elder brother in you. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Remember what that father said to the elder son in Luke 15, quote, All I have is yours. God was pleased with Jesus before he had done a single work. I want to point out something, though, I learned while putting this together. I've always pictured the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's descent upon him as this moment of coming out of the water and the Spirit resting and remaining on Jesus. Notice, however, that it says, quote, And as he, Jesus, was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. What preceded the descent of the Holy Spirit? Prayer. So a more accurate picture to paint in our imaginations is not this transition of spirit in the moment of coming up out of the water, we could say the churning of the water, but rather the stillness and power of prayer. Now, don't hear me to say there is not churning moments of spirit movement. Do not forget the upper room and the sound of the blowing of a violent wind and the 120 voices all entangled, all speaking in tongues, not their own, as the Spirit enabled them. This was not a still and quiet moment. Do notice, though, however, the preceding moment before that in Acts 1.14, quote, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Days of constant prayer preceded the transition of the Spirit. The praying of Jesus preceded the transition of the Spirit at his baptism. Now, to the thinker, 
who may be asking, is God's pleasure not connected to obedience or doing? Didn't Jesus seek to fulfill all righteousness in being baptized by John? and then found himself recognized by God as a pleased father with Jesus. Now, you're right in saying there's connection in obedience and God's pleasure. 1 Samuel 15.22 says obedience is far better than sacrifice. Now, notice though, sacrifice was actually obedience too because God had commanded it. So is God saying that obedience is better than obedience? No, he's saying that a right relationship and heart towards him is better than doing the necessary things. Jesus showed this through Mary and Martha. You remember when, when, she, when Martha was offended that Mary wasn't helping her with the good things. Jesus said, quote, Mary has chosen the better part. So that tells us that there's parts, a good part of doing and a better part of relation. James 2.24 establishes this also by saying, quote, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, this is not to say that a person is righteous by what they do and by faith. James tells us that you manifest your righteousness by your doing— your works prove your faith. There's a connection to obedience and God's pleasure. We obey God because we love God. The relation makes space for the outflow of doing. The two should never be separated, but there is a sequence, an order. Martha put the doing ahead of the speaking of Jesus. Martha was distracted, but Mary was discerning his words. Martha was serving, but Mary was seated at his feet. Jesus ranks proximity to him, priority to his speaking, and purpose unto him as the better way. So, too, had Jesus demonstrated this at his baptism, and the fathers proclaimed pleasure before stepping into the work of ministry that he had been assigned to. Jesus demonstrated that the core of our kingdom involvement is centered around being a child of God in whom the Father is pleased. The second reality of being in the kingdom of God is found in Luke 4, 17 through 19, which says, quote, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus tells us why the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Remember, as he prayed after his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. The quotation of Isaiah 61, 1-2 provides us insight into the mission of Jesus. So why is knowing Jesus' mission important aside from just knowing it? We find this in John 20, 21. Quote, and Jesus, again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. When Jesus stood up in the synagogue and told his mission, he was systematically and effectively telling his subsequent followers their mission. Because Christ's disciples have been born into a new kingdom, his kingdom, they are now sent as he had been sent for what he had been sent. What is embedded within Christ's mission and now inheritedly in ours? Notice the words, proclaim, you angelizo. Forgive me for my terrible Greek. That word is good news. Also, the word proclaim is cariso, freedom, and recovery of sight, and proclaim again, cariso, the Lord's favor. So we see three proclaims given. One is euangelizo, and two times it's carizo. Now, that's interesting that they're not the same Greek words, so there must be something unique about one compared to the two. So, the Greek word proclaim is, in the first one, the euangelizo, is where we get our word evangelize. We think of evangelist from that. Don't think evangelist in so much of the sense that you may have been introduced to as a child, depending on what stream of churches you grew up. Remember, the time for which this was written was during a Roman occupation of the Israelite people under a Greek backdrop. Without getting too far off the beaten path, an evangelist which could have even been a non-spiritual agent, would go forth announcing groundbreaking news that warranted immediate and or forthcoming excitement. When we read Jesus applying these words to his hearers' ears, we are and most would have understood him to be saying, essentially, announce to all that will hear of the reality of of what God has made available and why it's important. 
even a non-religious person would have appreciated the euangelion, the good news or gospel of announcements. This shows us that one component of proclaiming was to announce the gospel. As kingdom disciples of Christ, we are to announce the grand news of what he, God, makes available in himself. Now, the other component to proclaim was the word kariso. Now, this is similar but subtly different. This Greek word is most often translated in English as preach. This is more so tied to the idea of declaring or proclaiming something compared with euangelion, which is to proclaim good news, the, the gospel. Now, what does this mean in the context of Luke 4.18? Like Jesus, we are to proclaim, carizo, preach, freedom, for prisoners and the Lord's favor. And this, this is not just referring to prisoners like in the prison system. This could be prisoners in a very broad sense, both spiritually and physically. But we are also preaching or proclaiming the Lord's favor. We see this again in Luke 4.43, quote, But he said to them, Jesus said to them, I must preach euangelizo, the good news of the kingdom of God, to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching cariso in the synagogues of Judea. Do you see the two unique uses of that word preach? This ties us to, though, a subcomponent of Jesus' ministry, evangelizing and preaching in not only your immediate circle, but even further out to the places you're unfamiliar. Because remember, Jesus said, I must, I must share this with the other towns as well. This is reinforced in Acts 1.8, quote, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In summary, we are to announce the good news and preach freedom and God's favor to people across the face of the whole earth. For the purposes of this teaching, the last reality of the kingdom of God is to produce good fruit. Now remember I said at the beginning, this is I'm giving you three. There's much more. This is just for the purposes of this teaching. The last reality is to produce good fruit. So John is preaching, carizo, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His words are piercing the hearts of the people. He warns the crowd to, quote, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's Luke 3, 8. Now, this does not mean we produce fruit. John the Baptist is telling the people, you should be producing fruit that establishes you have repented of your ways. 
good apples should be coming from good apple trees. If rotten apples are coming from your, quote, self-proclaimed good trees, then you've got a major problem with your repentance. The crowd then asks John what they should do. Now, John's response should help drive the way that we conduct our lives, found in Luke 3, 11 through 14, which John says, he answers, quote, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, while this list is not exhaustive, it does give us insight into a component of how someone in the kingdom should behave. These examples provide us with insight regarding righteous behavior, which in turn is defined as fruit. But in remembering the idea of fruit, we should remember that good fruit is the result of being connected to a good tree. Righteousness should be a byproduct, or as John terms it, quote, in keeping with a life of true repentance. This ties us back to a previous verse in James, which said, quote, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That's James 2.24. There should be a fruitfulness in the life of the disciple who is a part of God's kingdom. The evidence of righteousness should be evident in fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. Let that serve as a means of measure to analyze your own life. Now, we've walked through a few points, in part, not whole, of the implication to the new life of the disciple of Christ that is a part of the kingdom of God. So, I'm in the kingdom of God. Now what? Number one, let the pleasure of God, because you are a child of God, be the core of your identity. Number two, announce and proclaim God's good news of salvation, freedom, sight, deliverance, and favor to all people throughout the world. And number three, live a life of righteousness in deeds and thoughts. Let that fruit demonstrate to the world around you the life-changing power of Jesus. So review these that you're called to and discover for yourself even more scripture that calls you to. Let these practical three points stir you to action and reinforce your identity in Christ for the purpose of God's mission until He calls you home and the moment of eternity is experienced and enjoyed. So thank you for taking the time with me on this episode. I pray that's a blessing, encouraging, 
and that you learned and apply in your life as you move forward day by day. Thank you and God bless. If it means that I'm close to you, I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with you. And in your house I hold